Hey there, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Tricky Kid Radio. I'm your host, as always, Roy Turner. It always cracks this gentleman up who's with me here. He's already laughing. We already have a good time, as we should, because we don't, we don't do this show during the I summertime. I just like the big intro. I want to, you know... Hello, everybody! Yeah, look at all the people here tonight! I learned from the greatest, man. I learned from David Lee, man. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to say me. Uh, <laughs> and who is me? Uh, Chaz. This is they Chaz. Call me Chaz. Welcome back to the show, Mr. Knight. Yes. Um, so again, we don't normally do the show during the summertime, but we had we have a very special guest, and we had a special Fourth of July episode, uh, and had an opportunity. So we would thought, hey, you know what, man, let's have a summer bash, and I can't have a summer bash without my buddy Chaz. Drink some beer and come in and bring in the party. Welcome back to Tricky Kid Radio. Chaz Knight, how are you, sir? Uh, great, thanks for having me. We're here. Where it's the summertime, cold beer and podcasting. Yes, got my got my drink in my hand, got my toes in the sand. All I need is a podcast and, to go <laughs> and beautiful girls. Oh man. Okay, so here's the deal. We're going to be talking about 1989. It's always the 80s with me. I don't know why you always like call me when it's the 80s shows. Because well, I'm old! Well, you're the only friend of mine that's, uh, that I have that's my age. <laughs> <laughs> They're all younger. No, all, your friends are younger. <laughs> They're all much younger. Almost. You're, you're, you're the only friend that has just kind of stayed, you know. Dang it. Yeah. Well, um, and, and you, you know this stuff. Ah, you know kinda, what I mean? So, kind of, yeah. Okay. From what you tell me, I do. Well, let me tell you this. Here's what was going to make this week so special, or this special episode, because it's not going to be part of a weekly thing, because again, we're just going to do two special episodes this summer, and this is one of them, and here's why. So, it is the 30th anniversary of the summer of 1989. Now, we're going to talk about more than just the summer of 89, but reason why that is a big deal for, for me personally, and maybe as well for you, because it was... Puberty. That, and it was the last year of, in my opinion, the greatest freaking decade in the history of mankind. That's why. Back uh, for part two, uh, this, ep- this 1989 episode became so ambitious and so large, and we've been working so diligently with you, we thought we'd split it up in two. Uh, normally the show's about 90 minutes long, and we realized we had about three hours of material. Uh, so, hey, man, why not split it in two? Keep this party rocking, this summer party we're having all summer long. And I hope you appreciate it. <laughs> I have really put my heart and soul. I put my heart and soul to all of them, but really this one, I just... Uh, as I kept going with the research, and I just kept finding more things, and so I was like, oh, okay. So instead of just, you know, 1989 in music, or 1989 in... Uh, um, movies. It became gaming and wrestling and just everything. I was remembering all all that stuff and all my time from '89. And uh, again, of course, our special guest is Michael Galinsky, who's written a, a book. Actually, I should say he has a photography book c- coming out uh, called "The Decline of Mall Civilization," and it's a sequel to his big hit from 2012 called "Malls Across America." And we had such a great chat uh, that we're going to be bringing you uh, part two of our talk uh, with Michael Galinsky. He currently has a Kickstarter for the for the book that you will have links on our website at trickykid.com. It's tricky-kid.com. 
and we'll be getting into all of that. Uh, so much great stuff. Just to, to bring you up to speed here a little bit, we left off right at the summer. And, of course, the, there was no voice louder in 1989, especially the summer of 1989, uh, than Chuck D and Flavor Flav and Public Enemy with Fight the Power, uh, which was a soundtrack, of course, to that summer's Do the Right Thing. Now, the album, the song uh, that the album is from is Fear of a Black Planet that didn't actually come out until 1990. And that was kind of like a little game we're playing with, like, what music do we, you know, do we play? Because... Like, for example, like Nirvana's Bleach came out in 1989. Well, I was completely oblivious to Nirvana until like 1992 or 91 when Nevermind came out, but certainly wasn't listening to Bleach in 89. It was at least 92 before I, I got to it. So, um, or things like this. I remember uh, Chris Isaac's, um, you know, of course, the, what's that? Uh, what a wicked game. That came out in 89, but most people didn't hear it till 91, and I was one of those people because the single didn't even come out. So we had a rule here is that the album had to come out in 89 or the single it was released from. And uh, and you'll see how that comes into play here with all that we're doing here. So again, we left off with part one. If you haven't checked it out, uh, I encourage you to dive into it. Uh, and you can see the first half here. We got you through January, and we stopped right into the middle of July, which is where we are right now. Uh, just to back up just a little bit, I think I mentioned this, but I was going to say a couple of releases that, that also had come out around that time. I mentioned Nirvana's uh, Bleach came out in June of 89. Uh, so also, of course, um, Faith No More is the Real Thing. Uh, so, I mean, I can't believe that in one month, like Nirvana's Bleach, Faith No More is the Real Thing, uh, my man Prince uh, with the Batman soundtrack, which was just, golly, Public Enemy might be number one, but Prince was just loud and proud with Bat Dance and all that awesomeness. And then my dudes, King's X, uh, came out with what most people consider to be their best record, Gretchen Goes to Nebraska. Uh, a lot of people, of course, ask me um, about the current film project that I'm doing and uh, because they're all eager to see it, and we are working hard on it. I can tell you that right now. The guys are currently out in Pasadena, California, um, working on their first record in 11 years. And uh, the movie that we are making, uh, we rolled camera starting last December. I've been doing my best to kind of keep everybody posted uh, by these little vignettes about the studio updates, but that's mainly regarding the record. And what I want a lot of what I want a lot of people to understand is that while yes, we are making a King's X film, this is not going to be the film version of like the book that came out earlier this year, which was called The Oral History of King's X. Um, this is going to be something very different. This is not going to be just a King's X movie just for the King's X fans and only people that already know who King's X are will be into or or this is for. This is going to be something where you don't have to even know who King's X is or even be a fan of the, the music. This is about the three individual members who happen to play in the band King's X. It will definitely have a King's X element and will tell that story but it's certainly just one part of the overall story. So, but for now, check us out on Tricky Kid TV. I've got a lot of great vignettes 
Um, we did week one. You guys loved that so much that we did individual little vignettes with uh, with Doug, Ty, and Jerry, and producer Michael Parnon out of the studio in, in Pasadena. Well, I've already put out week five of uh, Jerry and Ty, and we're going to drop Doug Penix tomorrow, uh, the same day that this airs, um, which will to, to kick off August, the hot August night on August 1st, which is uh, tomorrow. So make sure you definitely want to check that out. Okay, uh, let's see here. Uh, getting into a few other things. A few other releases I wanted to make, uh, also that came out actually in May, uh, were, uh, let's see here. There's one I'm not going to mention just yet because I'm probably going to play something from it and I want to do an intro for that. Uh, the Stone Roses, they're... And again, I didn't know who the hell the Stone Roses were in '89 because I was only 15. But uh, the but this was kind of a an exploration thing for me. I remember like I was into the Goth Girls at school, and they were into like bands I'd never heard of at that time, like that are now classics, like the Pesh Mode and the Cure. And and uh, the Cure came out with their album Disintegration, uh, which is a fantastic record. It was really my gateway into that whole world, and now I'm a massive fan of, of both bands. Um, Nana Cherry's Buffalo Stance, man. I mean, God, what a great classic summer. Uh, fight Again, Fight the Power, uh, you know, Buffalo Stance. And, and a lot of people who are making a lot of noise uh, was Two Live Crew. And they're, uh, of course, you guys remember the whole Me So Horny and the whole um, controversy with their album, As Nasty As They Want to Be. And like the main guy was named Luke Skywalker. Of course, he's getting sued by George Lucas. And then the record is so nasty that like some guy got arrested for selling it. Kind of like what happened with the Dead Kennedys a few years before that. But so a much different, different time uh, back then. And that that's the point because that really illustrates that. That like somebody actually got arrested for selling a, uh, you know, a minor, I guess, an album. Uh, which that would be unthinkable now. Um, and, and, when, and that's a good thing. Okay, so I also wanted to to say Happy Game Boy Day uh, to everybody. Uh, today, uh, 30 years ago, the Game Boy was released. And uh, if you, um, and I'll have this on our website as well, my phone case right now is actually a phone case that looks like a Game Boy, but it plays actual games, not just like... Probably actually even better versions of the games that were on the Game Boy in 89 because they're in color and they're not emulators, they're actual games. You can get yours at RetroCase.com. Uh, Go to RetroCase.com. Uh, they're also one of our sponsors and generously provided this amazing game case and uh, uh, phone case that plays all these fun games. It comes with like 60 games and I think you could add more. I haven't quite figured that out yet, but I think that you can. So I definitely want to encourage everybody to check that out. And, and so much happened that year in the world of gaming. For us uh, uh, as well, uh, personally, I think I mentioned on part one about how our entire life that summer was the, was super dodgeball. We would we lived in, uh, in Crowley, Texas, and me and uh, Steve Ainsworth and Chris Todd, we would go up to the quick way there in Crowley, Texas, and, uh, and really enjoy... Um, this game called Super Dodgeball that was released that year. Uh, the Sega Genesis came out uh, in 1989, in August. Uh, so did TurboGrafx-16. That didn't last very long, but uh, still a great, great thing. And probably one of my, besides Super Dodgeball, probably my, my greatest, most vivid memory of 1989 in gaming 
those who know me, of course, and we talked about this in part one, is I'm a, a massive, massive uh, baseball fan. And we talked about some of the events uh, that happened um, uh, in part one. You're going to hear some more about it here. Uh, you know, of course, the crazy all-star game, Mike Schmidt's retirement, my greatest, my favorite player of all time. So it ruled us. That's what we did. Like I said, I, I mentioned, uh, I said I think in part one, but um, we were good kids, man. I mean, we had long hair, and yes, we might have smoked a little pot and everything else. We were, you know, we were... We were experimenting. We were discovering. We were we were young. We were new. And but uh, people probably thought we were you know during the age of satanic panic that we're like sacrificing cats and and all kinds of you know mayhem. And we we were nerds, man. Like I said, we played baseball in my backyard. We played video games. We collected baseball cards the whole bit. And uh, so if any baseball related video game was available, it, we had played it. It was our life. Bases loaded. RBI baseball. And there was one that came out this year called Baseball Stars. And Steve was the one to get it. And I remember going over to his house. And it's like one of those things where, like, you look back now and, you, and you know, and you could probably get, if there was, like, an audio recording of this, I'd probably be quite embarrassed. But uh, you got you to gotta own that shit, right? I can remember going to his house. And it was, like, on, and I was always over. I lived over there practically. I go over there every morning before school and, and on the weekends, I pretty much lived over there. And I was that kid who, even if he was in trouble, I could still come over, you know. And uh, anyway, and so we'd already had this night planned where we're going to get together and all that and have an evening of video games and, and listening to music, having a good time. And, and you know, we didn't have cell phones. He couldn't have texted me that he had gotten it. I mean, I guess he wanted to surprise me. But the minute I walked in the, the door, he just stuck the box in my face. And I remember going... Oh my God, dude, you got it. And like his parents just kind of chuckled like, this dude's really excited about this. And, but also, you know, now that I'm a parent, I bet it probably gave them a sense of pride. Like, look, look, you know, this is cool. Steve's the cool kid, but uh, um, thanks to us. But uh, I certainly wasn't the one to impress. It was uh, it was kind of the other way around. It was, if there was, to talk about the Peshmo, if there was master and servant back then, I was... Definitely the servant uh, friend, Audrey Fernandez, who performs as Honey Hulala. She is one of the most premier uh, uh, burlesque, uh, just awesome, just everything she does is just incredible. Um, she performs, uh, how I met her was some of my friends, uh, Clinton Howard, here in Dallas, Texas, are in the greatest tribute band ever to the one of the greatest bands ever, uh, The Cramps. And they're called the Gorehounds. And, of course, you know, they have a song called uh, Bikini Girls with Machine Guns. And so they'll do the whole bit and have actual bikini girls with uh, with non-actual machine guns. Uh, and Audrey uh, is one of the performers in that. And she performs all over town with uh, lolly bombs. And she's just a, a major player on that scene, but she's just a major sweetheart. And, unfortunately, she uh, is uh, battling breast cancer. We, we want to support her. Uh, GoFundMe as well. We'll have links to all of that also on at trickykid.com. That's tricky-kid.com. And we'll have it all across our social media platforms as well. Audrey, we love you. Uh, you have a support system. Uh, we will see you through this, uh, and we'll be. You'll have you back on stage uh, doing your thing in no time. I wanted to, to mention about the album is called "Forever Your Girl," 
and I wanted to bring in the the girl who is for now forever my girl. Uh, you know, for we do now. for <laughs> What does that mean, Roy? Who said for now? You said for now. She's forever my girl. No, I mean I'm bringing the I'm bringing I, I said I'm bringing in now. Oh, okay. The girl that is now forever my girl. <laughs> Because as you guys know, we do the show during uh, like network TV. We do we do it, um, you know, in seasons and not during the summertime. So over the summer, since I last heard from you guys, yes, that charming, wonderful lady that you have heard on the show many, many times and playing her wonderful violin is now my beautiful bride and is sitting next to me, Jocelyn. Well, now Jocelyn Turner. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Uh, okay, so you were into Paul Abdul in 89, right? You were, you would have been 10 years old. Oh, yeah, old. absolutely. In fact, that was the first album I ever had to play on my jam box. I got Forever Your Girl um, as a gift. You did? Yeah, it came along with the gift, my little jam box gift for my birthday. Well, first of all, thank you for saying jam box. Because that is, <laughs> jam box is totally 1989 and totally 80s. For you millennials that just happened to stumble upon your parents' uh, phone and decided to listen to this podcast, um, this show's for you too. So what a jam box is, is uh, an actual um, listening device where you would put in an actual physical... Uh, cassette, or if you had a, a newer one at that time, a CD. I did not have CDs in 89. I was still all about the cassette, uh, like most people. Was your Jambox cassette, and or it also have a CD? It had a CD player as well. Okay. So, so it was very exciting for me. Very. So was your <laughs> version of, of Forever Your Girl on CD? Yes. It was. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. So... I, uh, we had Forever Your Girl, of course, you know, played it at our uh, wedding reception. It wasn't part of the ceremony or anything, but, uh, you know, it was something that I wanted to dance to you with because you are now forever my girl. And I love that song and I love that album and I love that time and I love what that time represents. But I also wanted to tell you a story that you don't know that's very specific to my 1989 experience. Uh, and I'm glad I have a new memory. Okay. Now this could go longer than what it should, so I'll do my best here. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, what it was also important to me, uh, we mentioned a while ago, is that this episode wasn't going to be revisionist. Like I said, like Nirvana's Bleach came out in '89, but we didn't know who Nirvana was till like '91, '92, right? Um, a lot of things like that. So I don't want to. Uh, be all like, oh yeah, I was digging on like. There's a band we really love called Skunk. You know, that Claude from Ween uh, that I went on to work with. Uh, their first album came out in 1989. I know every lyric from that, but I didn't know that album in '89, right? Sure. Okay, but one thing uh, that I did listen to, and I thought I think it might be for uh, a funny kind of thing, because here's what I identified as like a total metal guy, even though I was a total nerd, right? Yes. I've heard this before, like me, Steve, and Chris, even though we were like, we had long hair, and we were in a band, listening to metal, we were in a small town dealing with small town politics and bullshit, right? right. And the other long-haired people, there were only maybe like a handful of them, we probably disliked them more than the other people. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, mm -hmm. the cheerleaders and the jocks of the world didn't really bug us, is you know, or bother us, meaning like rub us the wrong way than the other people that we were somehow erroneously linked to. Right. <laughs> uh, okay. So what that means is, 
is that, but still, I was, I never tried to fit in with anything. I mean, I, I, you know, it was back then I was a weird kid and I was uh, punished for it or, or made fun of for it and rewarded for it later on as an adult, right? Yes. So a great example of that was, and I was never posing. I was, I was like, I didn't care. I never tried to be cool. I was actually really friends with everybody, including the jocks and all the little different cliques and stuff, you know. Hey. But but we were nerds, man. Like we, so we played baseball. We collected comic books, the whole bit. So here's one thing I thought was very interesting. So it's 1989. And again, me, Steve, and Chris are the three musketeers. And I don't think Steve was there, but Chris was kind of the first to do a lot of things. He was the first to drive. He was the first to like really have like a girlfriend, you know. And he was dating this girl named Heather and who lived uh, far enough that it was not walkable. Uh, even though Crowley's very small, it was a little bit outside of Crowley. Um a couple miles away, and I think he had somehow had access to some sort of transportation. Again, we were only like 15. I don't, I don't know how. I don't know. Maybe we even got dropped up. I don't quite remember that part. But anyway, the point is, is uh, the there were there were a few other like like you know rock and roll people, and there's always a couple of girls that kind of orbit that little scene, right? Sure. You know, like when you see the skateboarders and then you see kind of the girls. I, I love it now, and this isn't to be gender specific. I love it now that when you see the skateboarders, the girls are right there with them and kicking ass and skateboarding with them. But I just mean that, you know, there's that kind of back then it was just kind of like there was these metal dudes and then there was like the two chicks that were just kind of hanging out. In our little circle, the two girls were Nikki and Tiffany. And Nikki was the kind of girl that... I think she faked like four pregnancies that that school year, <laughs> just to <laughs> give you a roadmap here. Okay. Meaning, like, instead of like people who actually were pregnant and not wanting that kind of attention and having to go to the alternative school while they when they started the show and that sort of thing, somehow she wanted that attention. And or if things weren't going her way that day, she would fake a stomach ache and and she had to go home. And the reason why was because she was pregnant. Uh, She looked like and and acted like somebody that was wildly promiscuous and probably was. Um, And so it was also believable. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like, 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 oh, yeah, like, sure. You know, so anyway, so I think that year she faked like four pregnancies and like four miscarriages. It was just that kind of scene. Right. (laughs) Well, anyway, well, so she was having a party and I and again, Chris Todd's girlfriend, Heather, uh, I guess, was going to be at this party. I think she was also in some kind of distress. Like, like, I don't think we were invited to the party and we would we wouldn't want to go again. We were nerds, man. And. but I think that Heather, I think if I think about it correctly, Heather was at the party and somebody had come by and I think I told you this before, whatever, was a kid named Melvin who's currently serving a life sentence, by the way. Wow. Um, and had, I don't know, he like forced Heather to kiss him or something and drove off. I think they were hanging out in the front yard and they drove by. Again, small town bullshit. So we had to kind of go to this to kind of rescue Heather. And while we're there, it's like one of those, like, like Nikki's parents might have had money because I remember the house being very nice. And to show you how tacky this was, like, Heather, uh, like, she was so proud of, like, the waterbed in, <laughs> in her house. 89 is that in her bedroom. Sure, yeah. 
I would have been too. Well, okay, but you probably <laughs> wouldn't have talked about your sexual conquest and had a had a perspective of of like sex on a waterbed or not on a waterbed. Uh, no, I wouldn't have had that um, perspective. You're right, <laughs> but not even because of your age, you wouldn't have even have had that at 15 or even maybe even at 25. <laughs> I'm saying like right. Yeah, water beds are a little weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're a little weird. I actually had one too, but you know, at this point, I'd barely, I don't think I'd even had kissed the girl. But anyway, but the point is, is that so we're at this party, and you know, it's metal with the metal, you know, people and the metal chicks and everything else. But that's not what they're listening to. Nikki is blasting, blaring the Paula Abdul "Forever Your Girl" album. That I hadn't heard. We didn't listen to the radio, you know. We listened to our, you know, what, what was in the the metal magazines, and we would go try to find that on tape. And radio was for wimps, which actually cost us big time because the only way to find out about concerts back then was probably by a radio announcement, right? Sure. And we missed so much stuff. Anyway, so she's listening to "Forever Your Girl" and not. And and we're talking not 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 in a in a guilty pleasure kind of way, like daring us to say to talk shit about it, like <laughs> like I'm into this, deal with it kind of thing. And you know I couldn't exactly champion it at that time, but I was digging what I was hearing because like, I was in a Debbie Gibson as much as I was in the Slayer and all that, right? <laughs> And anyway, but there were kind of like we all we all had to be all like, "What's this shit?" You know what I mean? You know, okay, yeah. While we were there, oh. so anyway, so I'm so glad to know that I now having a very different memory. That when I listen to "Forever Your Girl," as fun as it is, is to think about that party in 1989 uh, and how I was exposed to Forever Your Girl. I love it that when I hear it now that I think of the girl who is with me forever and that's you. Oh, I love you, baby. I love you. <laughs> so, uh, with that in mind, again, just taking over the charts, uh, this is the title track uh, from, from Paula Abdul. This is Forever Your Girl.
Hi, this is Natalie Cox. I play Juno Eclipse in The Force Unleashed, and you're listening to Tricky Kid Radio with Roy Tanner. So that's my Paul Abdul story. So that's my, I now have a new memory of Forever Your Girl. Uh, thanks to you, my dear. Okay, so like I said, so now uh, we're going to bring you uh, a part two with our chat with Michael Galinsky. Again, he is a uh, photographer who was really the only person to document 19, uh, you know, the mall culture of the 80s on this crazy trip he took in 1989. The, the photographs are coming to life. Uh, there are a sequel to his 2012 book, Malls Across America, which he promises is going to be done uh, even better and bigger this time. Um, and also, if you're a fan of Stranger Things, uh, you'll might notice a few things because it's pretty clear uh, that in this latest episode where they spent a lot of time at, at, at a mall, that these photos were a great source material for that because um, Michael grew up in, in North Carolina or in the same area that uh, the Duffer Brothers, who are the creators, of Stranger Things were. So anyway, here's our part two um, with our talk with Michael Galinsky. In film school, when I was a photographer, I was actually documenting a lot of the underground music stuff at the time. So we made a film called Half Cocked. And it's about a bunch of kids who steal a van full of equipment and pretend to be a band. And it's not based on suburbia, but it's largely, it is inspired by that idea. Because like, the people in that movie, like Flea is in that movie from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Right. Basically, you know, plays like a, a, a homeless kid. And, um, you know, these guys are living in a squatted house, but it, it's basically trying to be, you know, have a really, a great deal of various military. It's just like, you know, this is what this really is and just trying to feel real, almost like a documentary. And so in our movie, Half Cocked, it's all people from these bands in Louisville, including Crane and uh, Rodan, and they're basically playing themselves. So wow. They're not really playing themselves, but some iteration of themselves. It was meant to document that world. And what was interesting is right after we finished shooting it, I went on tour with my band, and um, while I was on tour with, with my band, Kurt Cobain killed himself. Oh, wow, yeah. So it really was the kind of defining end of that scene and yeah. that world. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was interesting. And, you know, it's really interesting. Is while, while I was on tour, um, my wife was editing in her closet, because you had to edit on film. We shot this on film. Oh, yeah. She had a steam back movie. Oh, it was actually a steam back. And, um, but she had to move out of her room for five days because it was being rented for them to shoot kids. Oh. The Larry Clark movie was shot in her bedroom. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Crazy, crazy coincidences, though, I think, to work out that way. No, so that, no, that is crazy. And, you know, it, yeah. it's funny, too, is that, okay, so Harmony Corinne, of course, that was his directorial debut. Is that right? Which one? Uh, kids was Harmony Corinne's directorial. No, 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 yeah, no, yeah. Well, he actually just wrote it. He Larry wrote it. Clark. Larry Clark, Larry right. Clark is a really incredible photographer. Oh, yeah, I, I'm very familiar it. with, with yeah. him. His, uh, yeah, Tulsa. Okay. Okay. So yeah. Okay. So 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 back that up for a second. Okay. Yeah. Because all right. One thing. My Larry Clark moment was when I was living in New York, and he came out with a movie called Rockers. If you saw that. Yes, I didn't. I, I yeah. Well, so part of our 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 movie was based on the other Rockers, the original Rockers. Right. Right. So I, which is a is a Jamaican like movie that's also like Sly and Robbie play Sly and Robbie. Yeah. 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 yeah totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And Jimmy Cliff plays Jimmy Cliff. Yeah. So, yeah. That was kind of the inspiration as well. But I, I only saw, I think I only saw parts of Larry Clark's Rockers. But yeah, go ahead. Well, but but that, that was the point I was trying to make was that I, I remember I was in Brooklyn and Larry did an outdoor like screening, and it was the first time I'd ever had seen a movie. Where, you know, this is, I mean, this is totally non, this is not in a theater. This is not even like in a, like a, on a lawn area. Basically, we were like in a parking lot and where you could yeah. sit was where you could sit. Yeah. 
And it was the first time I'd ever had seen a movie where as I'm watching the film, I kind of happened to kind of like look over or turn my head and realize that the people on screen are actually here in, in the audience, you know, cool. watching it, right? And watch, kind of watching themselves. And, and so back to what you were saying about how these people have kind of have, have noticed them, them, themselves yeah. uh, and have reached out to you. Uh, because it went so viral, isn't that isn't that incredible? Uh, it's so incredible you can't imagine. There's there's so much like that's what I, when you said the heavy metal guy, I thought you were talking about this guy. He's giving a bottle to a baby. Oh, like, oh, I saw it. Yeah, yeah, I saw it. Yeah. So that guy, I'm now good friends with. God. Because his friend, uh, I mean, a friend of my a friend of my wife's from Dallas actually is a um, a stylist, and he's a big deal photographer now. Oh so wow! She tagged him in the photo, and she goes, "That's David Yeller." He's like, "Oh my god, that is!" And um, he's actually in this new book. And um, yeah, he, he actually he actually so this gets even crazier. He went on tour with Cinderella and like Wasp in two thousand and <laughs> shot um, uh, pictures of all the fans in the parking lot. And, oh, okay. and he just posted about it today. He's got this book that came out in, uh, a few years ago. Um, I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> God, it's crazy, man. Yeah. Because I was it's, thinking. It's great. You, David Yellen, you can look him up. David Yellen. Yeah. I'm writing it down right now. And our listeners, you should you should check that out too. So you said that right there about the parking lot because you know what I was thinking of was the first thing I thought of when you mentioned about people reaching out to you was, of course, is it is heavy metal parking <laughs> lot from 86 yeah. uh, at, the, at a Judas Priest concert for our listeners who haven't yeah. seen it. And Jeff Krulik is the director who's a good friend of mine. Oh, okay, cool. And yeah. so, and then uh, and J- uh, John Hine directed that, is that correct? Yeah, John Hine and Jeff Krulik. Got it, okay. And so what the deal was, I, I remember seeing many years later, uh, God, it must have been, I mean, maybe not that long ago, um, it was like zebra maybe... guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they found the zebra guy. Yep. And he was just like some regular dude who had who hadn't even given a, a second thought, had no idea that, that his images were experiencing this whole second life online. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I love it so much. Now, I wanted to talk about this for a second, too, because this is how we're going to bring the old technology into the new technology, and it's this. Sure. I tend to have... And follow me here. Uh, I tend to have a bit of a Charlie Brownness uh, to me and my life and everything that I tend to do. And what that means is, is that it's, that's not a cry for help. I'm just having some fun here. Uh, but what I mean is, is that I still feel, Michael, that if I was the one that had shot all these pictures and then I put them in a drawer and then X amount of years, you know, later, I decided to put them online. I. I just I gotta feel that like still BuzzFeed and the viral world still wouldn't give a shit if it came from me. <laughs> so what I want I want you to tell our listeners how the hell did this thing get so big and get so big so quickly? I think there's several different things about it. So one thing to know is like when I went to New York University, it was largely a commuter college. So almost everyone who went there lived on Long Island. The same was true of the Fashion Institute of Technology. Yes. And this is significant because Smith Haven Mall was their mall. Ah, okay. When they went online, someone from Refinery29 saw it and they pushed it. And so then that led to this person grabbing it and that person grabbing it. And I can't remember. I think BuzzFeed just grabbed it. And and this was all before I had... um, 
done anything with it or had any idea. It was just like I put it up on our rumor website or our Facebook page. So what I did was I quickly started a Kickstarter campaign and I went back to all of them and I said, hey, look, you shared my images. Can you share them again now that I have this Kickstarter campaign? And they did. Oh, actually, you know what it was? Um, it, actually, this is exactly what happened. There was a website called How to Be a Retronaut, which put up historical photos. And my, my brother-in-law um, posted a bunch of Bruce Davidson photos that they had put up. And I love Bruce Davidson. I was like, oh, that's so great. And I was like, you know, I bet they would be actually be interested in this because it wasn't so much about like the famous photographers. It was about what historical images. Yeah. So I went to the dude and he's like, yeah, great. And he put them up. And that's when they just exploded because a lot of other – he was early to that game. And, and then it gets to this other thing of like, okay, now I've lost control of them because yeah. what happened is everyone's just sharing them. Nobody's attaching to me, so they just become the world. And in a way, um, I was okay with that, but in a way it started to feel a little bit uncomfortable because people were exploiting them and making money off them. That got uncomfortable, but you know, it's, it's, it's working out those different issues. Like I do feel like information should be free, but if people are profiting from it, then the, the maker should get some of that profit. Oh, uh, sure, and that that that's a whole other course conversation that we yeah. actually have uh, covered. That we will we will point our listeners to the archive, and but it'd be something I would love for you to comment on at at, a, at, a, at another time because that's very very important. That's that's how we yeah. we bring the old into the new. Is that right. is that is that is that kind of dialogue? But you know, at the same time. <clears throat> Uh, again, I can I can see you know you coming from that world and now having to deal with it in this capacity and how that might become uncomfortable. But at the same time, your book is going for like a thousand dollars, like crazy. online. How do you explain that? They didn't print nearly enough of them. So what happened was I did a Kickstarter. I was going to make a book, but because they went so viral, it really it's a very funny story. But we had just made a movie that you might have seen called Battle for Brooklyn. I, I, I've heard about the book. I, I didn't. I didn't yeah. know that you were involved with that. I'll have to check that yeah, out. Yeah. So my wife and I made that movie, and um, we were just about to go to the Hot Dogs Film Festival to show that movie when this very important designer named Peter Miles came over and said, "You know, I don't go on the internet, but someone showed me these images, and I have this imprint on Steidl, and I could put out a book for you on Steidl." You know, he didn't really want anything. He just wants to design it. He makes plenty of money. He's like does very fancy work, but he likes to make books. And he said, or I could do it on Rizzoli. And if it was on Rizzoli, it would be in malls. We could make a nice book, but we couldn't do whatever we wanted. And if it's on Steidl, we can do whatever we want. We can make this incredible book. You probably won't see any money. And I said, well, I know about Steidl, and Steidl does great books, but I really want it to be in the malls. It should be a populist book. And he said, okay. So the next day, I flew to Hot Docs, literally the next day, because I was packing up as he came over to look at the slides. And... Um, the very first movie I saw at Hot Dogs was How to Make a Book with Steidl. <laughs> like, literally, this guy's following around Gerhard Steidl as he makes books with Carl Lagerfeld, Robert Frank, um, you know, just Jeff Wall, all of the like, most important photographers in the world. And it just, I was like, okay, it's got to be a Steidl. The problem was it then took many years to happen. And they weren't, they didn't see me as the artist, they saw this designer. So I didn't get to go help make the book, which is, was one of the appealing things about it. And, you know, there was no real communication with me. So when I finally met with their publicist just before it came out, I said, this, I'm going to make this go viral. And she was really patronizing, almost like patting me on the head and said, oh, sure, yes, you will. And so it sold out before it even hit stores. Like one, one Gizmodo article sold 636 copies. They had a little Amazon clicker. So they only printed like 1,500 copies. And they, were, they didn't, like, I actually met a guy today, I mean, last week, who was a buyer at a store in Boston. He gave away the copy he got from Steidl to a friend because he figured he would just pick it up when it came into their store, and they never got them because oh. they, they only printed 1500 And so that's why it's, it's 
really, you know, so out of print. And then they told me they were going to reprint it and never reprinted it. I so that's see. Why okay. So for it. Yeah. Because but that's why I was also like, I want to make a new book. And at first, I was going to make one that combined, like, took some of the images from that. But as I started to put together, I was like, oh my god, there's so many images that didn't make it in. I'm going to let that be what it is, and maybe we'll reprint it in the future. Yeah. Which yeah. Might actually happen. Yeah. Well, I would love that, and you know, something else because yeah. because the first time, like I said, when my when my producer sent me the article, obviously knowing that I'm insane about it, everything '80s and how I've been nonstop talking about this upcoming '89 episode, and I've been really putting my heart and soul into it. And when I got it, I was like, "Oh my god!" Like this is, I was like, "I have something," because I, I didn't know about the book. I mean, I literally did yeah. not know about Malls Across America four days ago, right? And right. and but that would be something that would have been totally. Um, you know, on my radar. So the yeah. first thing I thought of was, was well, I, I got to get this book. So I immediately was going to, and, and not like I'm trying to get free concert tickets, but I was thinking, yeah. I was like, oh, well, maybe Michael could just send me one, and and I can talk about it on the air. You know, that's what we I do here. But they're they're like seven hundred dollars of the cheapest now, and I, I don't even have any. I mean, I, I just put there were four of them. Actually, when we started the campaign, they were like three fifty online, but the campaign has really gone viral. So now there's, I mean, they're probably more today. You know, because yeah. Those prices are based on how much is being searched for and who's buying them. Um, so we actually had four of them up for sale for like it was like four twenty, but you get both books and a print, and they all sold out already on the Kickstarter. And a bag of so and I, a bag of weed because it's four twenty. Exactly. No, no bag of weed. I'm not sending you that. You got you to gotta give me that. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, it is one reason I would encourage people to go ahead and get it because it's not going to be. Um, through a big publisher, it's going to be me getting it printed, and we've only get it printed really nice because we've done well enough with the Kickstarter that I can get better paper. Um, but you know, if you don't get it through the Kickstarter, you probably won't get it. And that's what I wanted to tell uh, people to reinforce yeah. that is that go there uh, to your Kickstarter. Can you? Uh, there'll be links, yes, of course, just, on, on our website. But I wanted you to yeah, go ahead and tell us now. Rumor.com/slash malls. R U M U R as the palindrome. You know, the R faces the R, then you got the U dipping, and then the M. Right. Rumor.com slash malls, and it will go to the Kickstarter. And there it is. And uh, I, I can't wait to see this book. I can't wait to have it in my hands. And you also, like you said, you probably learned from the other, uh, the first experience, because I know that there, there were, uh, admittedly, some criticisms about the, the, the first print uh, of the book. What, what, do you, what do you think that you would do, you're going to do differently well, with this book? Well, actually, part of the reason I'm a little upset that I didn't get to go print was... I agreed to doing it all double page spreads, like really big pictures. If they made it a lay flat book, which right. is, uh, I think it's a Coptic binding, it's called, where you don't have any gutter, but then they didn't. So a bunch of the pictures gutter badly, and not not that many, but enough to make people upset. Yeah. Um, it's also that it shot on ectochrome film in 1989 with a not great lens, and people, some people, I think, expected like something that it's not and never purported to be so there were right. some complaints about it but in general obviously people like it you know it's just people who don't you know it's kind of like if you drink orange juice um but you think you're drinking milk yeah 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 <laughs> but, but but it's also you know, it's, it's it's a fun little subtext there because it's the ex- expectation of the millennial and not i'm not some millennial yeah. bashing kind of guy but like yeah, yeah. But just as an example, like, I mean, I have, like, a YouTube channel that we put some of these up on sometimes. And, and you know, but it's not some major production. I mean, we have a good – we have a studio here, and we have a, we put out a great product, and we have a great, uh, uh, you know, uh, following. And, and, and it's, a, it's a decent show that I'm very, we're very proud of and we work hard on, and, and it's great. Yeah. 
But the YouTube aspect, again, we're not a TV studio, right? Um, one of my good friends, my friend Aaron, he plays in, a, in a, that, that rock band 311. You probably have heard of those guys, right? Okay. So he and I are great friends, and he is a, a craft beer enthusiast, and, and I am a home brewer. And so when we get together, we that's what we talk about a lot, okay? And so I thought, hey, we'll let some people in on that. And so uh, I was out in California. I'm actually working on uh, a movie. My, my first film right now is a documentary on a rock band you may remember from the late 80s, early 90s. Called King. Oh, so you looked it up then? <laughs> well, I thought when you sent me your uh, your link, yeah, yeah, I, I do know. I remember King X. That was late eighties. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so uh, we're actually uh, in production right now uh, for that. Uh, and so anyway, and so we were. Uh, I was out there because they were actually recording their first uh, record in like eleven years, and we're like in the wow. studio and getting all this great footage. Anyway, so I thought, well, I'm gonna go see Aaron. You know, that's what I. Uh, he has. He goes by Peanut in the in the band, but I I know him outside of it. So, um, I I, I always forget that. We're gonna go. Well, I thought the bass player was like, oh yeah, that that thing. Uh, anyway, and so I go over to his studio. Uh, where and then we're just gonna like hang out and talk and and uh, share some beers. And we thought, well, hey, let's turn the camera on and let's let people in on it. You know, this isn't some major production here. This is just us having a beer and chatting, and I'm turning him on to some new craft beers, and he's turning me on to some, and we thought we'd let people in on it. And you put it online, and some people are kind of like, man, the sound and the lighting, and you, you know, they're just like complaining about, like, isn't that something that you have faced a little bit with, with, with your oh, project? Yeah. But, but I'm also, you know, I, I think actually that aesthetic is switching back. I think people are actually starting to get rid of the Instagram aesthetic and, and they're, they're rebelling against everything having to be perfect and you're getting a lot of people wanting to shoot on film or to really make things kind of grungy again. I, I think mean, so everything too. Everything ends and it flows, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like how, how suddenly... The, uh, you know, we I want things to be back on cassette and, and not even right, from... Right, a, yeah, exactly. And not even maybe from a nostalgic standpoint. Maybe it's also from like a uh, I want to experience it how it was or just like you said, simply... Um, I'm, I'm kind of into deprivation right now. I'm kind of into, I want something to be not so nice and pretty and efficient. And, right. and uh, I, I applaud and welcome that in all capacities. Yeah. Last but not least, for now, uh, I wanted to say this was, okay, how much do you think also, because I know your work is great and it's awesome, uh, but I think it's also fair to say, is it, like you mentioned, the proximity of of the New York thing, and and this is what I mean. Like, do you did you see uh, Riot on the dance floor? It's a documentary on City Gardens out in Trenton, New Jersey. Did you happen to see yeah, this? No, I know, no, I didn't get to see it, but I know about it. Okay, you should check it out for sure. It's like this yeah. City Gardens was this place that was run by this mail oh, yeah. mailman and all that, and this is where a lot of bands right uh, would stop between like Philly and New York to get some extra yeah. extra cash, right? It was oh. a Wednesday night show before they'd play Maxwell's on Thursday. Right, and right. On Friday. Yeah. Well, like so. Here's so here's what I'm getting at. Here's where I mentioned that is because okay, uh, I have toured with a lot of bands and stuff, and one of the uh, one of the bands that got their start uh, at City Gardens, uh, and a band that I worked and toured with for many years is, is a band out of Philadelphia called Ween, and uh, and I <laughs> and I work. So you know how. So if you know who they are, you know how insane those yeah. guys are. And, uh, and I worked pri- uh, directly, primarily with her drummer, Claude Coleman Jr. Well, anyway, so when Ween was playing there, like, 
John Stewart, like from The Daily Show and, yeah. uh, and whatever, like he was the freaking bartender there. You know what yeah. I mean? And yeah. like, like, uh, like James, like James Murphy from LCD Sound System was like, like a bouncer or something. You know, it's yeah. like there's something. And then like Claude, one time was showing me his annual from high school, and there's just it's just something about the. And I'm not impugning or 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 uh, lowering anybody's you know talent or, or efforts whatsoever, but he was showing me his annual from high school, and I swear to you, it was like a who's who of people in the rock film. It was like everybody, and he he didn't go to some like you know uh, right, right. magnet school for all these like like fame or whatever, like the TV show Fame. Just a, a, a typical boring high school in I think like Millwood, New Jersey. And but you're close to the city, and people could go in at a time. The city was full of culture that was really accessible. So yeah, there, there you go. So again, yeah. I, I think your work is great I, and wonderful. I, I, but I just feel like we also need to, to, to acknowledge that you know there is something about you know the, 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 your New York connection. Like I said, like all the girls that I, when I was living in New York, all the girls that went to FIT that I dated, they, they, they still wouldn't have gotten my, my project <laughs> uh, into the stratosphere. I really feel like that. It's great work. Yeah. That it's also, it's a, it's a moment of the zeitgeist. I mean, that's like, it's so funny that I, I launched this thing on Monday, and Wednesday, Stranger Things launches, and it's all in the mall. That was all right there. It was really crazy. It was like but, the gods were smiling down upon you, my friend. Like, yeah. It was, well, yes. Although then there's kind of like, so what? You know, that, that aspect of like, of course, it's just malls. Everybody, you know. Uh, but, I, I, you know, it's funny when I mentioned half cocked, like, James Murphy actually did um, did sound on that movie from uh, uh, DFA. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, I, where I grew up, I lived in I lived grew up in Chapel Hill. So sometimes you know, there's other connections too. Where have you ever heard of the band Super Chunk? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, so Chunk is Chuck Garrison, whose locker was above mine in seventh grade because I'm Galinsky. Ah, oh, yeah, <laughs> right, okay, so yeah. The world is very small in that way, and then we're just the randomness of, like, my first roommate in college was in a band, and, you know, then the two people next door were incredible people. It's just, it's just like how you meet people when you got in the world and how, how much that changes your life. It, it really does. I mean, it, it, yeah. it, the things that took off for me... Um, there's a there's a DFA connection. I, the reason why I moved to New York was because I was working for a record label down here, and I moved to New York to work for a, a label called Astroworks Records, which is primarily a uh, electronic dance. Like we had like Fatboy right. Slim. And, Brian Long works there, right? Say again. Brian Long. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Wow, it is a small yeah. world, isn't it? Yeah, I, I did, gave him photos for what was it called? Rock Pile, wasn't the Rock Pile? Right, exactly. Yeah. And so uh, what was funny was is you know that we bought uh, DFA and uh, and we were the ones that put out all that re-released all that DFA stuff that was coming out uh, around two thousand. Sure. Say, say again. The Rapture was that on DFA? Uh, the uh, DFA was uh, was yeah the Rapture. Uh, uh, House of Jealous Lovers was the the twelve right. inch that we put out and uh, yeah I did a short film about the Rapture for InSound. I worked at InSound. Oh okay oh god dude <laughs> I mean I used to DJ. I was the only employer there. God. The first. Dude, I used to DJ at if you if you spent some time in of course in New York, I used to DJ at a place on Second uh, Avenue and Fifth uh, called Lit. It was a Lit Lounge. Yep. 
And and I got there right at the at the right time. I moved there in 2006, and suddenly it was all about, you know, the rapture and Les Fav and right. uh, the gossip and all that wonderful stuff with La Tigra and all that was just really exploding around that time. Uh, it's just crazy what a small role it is. But um, yeah, Lat- I'll just say this: that the only reason the mall pictures ended up in the Nasher was because of Harrison, the drummer for Les Savifov. Oh, wow! Oh, here and actually. He teaches at a school called uh, uh, Durham Academy. He's a, he's a photo teacher, which is you know, three hundred and fifty yards from where South Square used to stand. You got to be shitting me, okay? <laughs> no. And and I would have never have known that if I hadn't mentioned them. They're like my they're like my favorite yeah. man. Like that's. Oh, he's got this incredible new band now with uh, two other women I know. Um, you got to check him out. What are they called? I'm, I, I'm trying to remember, but I okay. can't. Okay. Well, te- when you, uh, when you get it, you text it to me because I want to. I got to see that. Yeah. Because I know that like Sid and uh, what's that other dude's Seth. I know that those guys basically joined like Seth Meyers's band, right? Mm-hmm. I, th- I think so. Yes. And like, then yeah, John Worcester, the new, the second drummer for Super Chunk after Chunk was just playing on that show recently. Oh, okay. And I think Tim is doing something with his wife and something because yeah. they all went to that same uh, Rhode Island art school that the Talking school Heads went to. Yeah, right, yeah. right. God, what a small world, man. You and I, you and I could talk forever, my friend. And, and I hope that we will. And and yeah. and again and again and uh, and again. Like I said, I will be. Um, I said I'm working on a project myself that you know you'll be hearing about pretty soon. Yeah, um, sounds good. Happy to help. Uh, I, I would, you know what, I actually may, may take you up on that, my friend. Yeah. Um, and that would be a conversation that I would love to have soon, sooner than later. Um, yeah. Last question for you for now, I know you want to go see your mom, is that outside of the mall, outside of the book, you're 20 years old, outside of the trip that you took, because I'm sure that you uh, already have... Uh, probably, you know, this, while you were waking up to slugs uh, uh, in the train station, I'm yeah. sure that there was a song or, or, or something uh, that was the soundtrack to that. But when you look back around that same year, that same time outside of that project, for your own personal summer of 1989, what do you what do you think of? I, I actually think a lot about the replacements <laughs> and the misfits and um uh just all the tapes that a friend of mine made for me my friend gene booth just made us all these tapes that we listen to all the time and you know uh, the damned and gang of four and all these things that you know more more obscure records from bands that i, I knew of but hadn't listened to right so that's really we, we had a cassette player in the car and that's all i did was listen to music but it was also you know the interesting thing about that year is the summer before I had worked in Maine in a in an inn, and every night as I was mopping the kitchen, "Welcome to the Jungle" would come on. Oh yeah! Because it was literally every night at ten o'clock, it would be like the hit top top hits at ten. Right. And every night, and and I and I liked it, but I didn't love it, and I came to really appreciate it after having to listen to it that much. Yeah. And but it was here's the thing about it: it was the year between Guns N' Roses and Nirvana, and I think it was just before that trip that I'd seen Nirvana play at the Pyramid. And the only people there were like Sonic Youth and Iggy Pop. Wow. It was almost empty, and they destroyed everything. And Chad Channing was still the drummer, and it was it was pretty great. Wow! Um, so it was it was really you know as Guns N' Roses had broken, but it was that it was almost like um, the Demogorgon opening the way for everyone, <laughs> you know, cracking it open because you know they were that halfway point. They were kind of like 
hair metal was on the way out and grunge was on the way in. Yeah, it, 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 as any decade ends, there's always that ending of something yeah. and beginning of something across the board, you know? Yeah. Well, Michael... So it, was, it was kind of, it was a transfer from Decline Part 1 through Decline Part 2 to the beginning of Part 3. Yes, that's a, that's a perfect way of saying it. And again, like I said, yeah. in, the, in the transition about the Stranger Things. So I want our listeners, if you haven't seen Stranger Things, if nothing else, check it out. Check out the first few uh, episodes. There's one actually even called The Mall Rats. Uh, and it, it's, like I said, you know, this isn't about like, you know, yeah, man, they use Michael's pictures, but it's just a great, it's a great launching point for, uh, as a comparison there, check out his Kickstarter. The book, the new book is called the decline of mall civilization. Uh, and again, where can they find you on the interwebs? My friend, R-U-M-U-R.com. And okay. you know, we also have a rumor page on Facebook and, and, um, pages for different movies. What's up? This is the infamous serial wax killer, Beastie Boys, DJ Assassin, Mix Master Mike, and you're tuned in to my man, DJ Tricky Kid. Don't be a clown. Don't sleep. Check it out, y'all. Man, I gotta get that book when it comes out. Yeah, right? Okay, so here's the deal, though. The only, probably the only real way to get it is through the Kickstarter, okay? Because when he did the original book, Malls Across America, in, in 1989, um, the publisher only printed like, like 1,500 books. And so those books now, if you go to Amazon or wherever to get right. that book, they're like $700. No way. Yeah. Because he really was the only one. I, I, I am not kidding you. And think about this, too. When you went to the mall, or if you, the disposable camera really wasn't a, a thing yet, right? I mean, they had them, but not, it was kind of a thing that kind of came out a little bit later. I mean, uh, you know, you were every click of that camera, if you had one. If you had a camera, it separated you from people who didn't have one, right? And think about it. Every shot had to count. You weren't going to waste it on some stranger at a mall. Why would, why would you take pictures at the mall? You, why would you bring your camera to the mall, right? It's crazy. So that's why, and as you heard in the interview, why how he was, he was really the only one that did it. And they also, if you heard it, if you have seen the current season of Stranger Things, as we talked about in the interview, you'll see... That the mall that he documented because he grew up where he still lives in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, right. is the mall yeah. where the Duffer Brothers that made Stranger Things grew up. And the current season where they're all hanging out at the mall, if you look at that mall and look at his pictures, it's clearly influenced by he. I mean, but if anybody did research to make a mall look like the 80s, it would probably look like Michael's photos That's because because they're the only ones that are on there, right? And he's I got a, a filmmaker. Show. What's that? So, all this mall talk. Yeah. <laughs> so, 89, I'm putting it together in my head. You know, I'm, we're talking about malls. We're talking about what I was doing that year. What mm -hmm. I think I started working at, I started working at the mall in 89. Mm. I worked at this place called Chelsea Street Pub as a bartender at tw when I was 21. In Lubbock? In Lubbock at the South Plains Mall. Oh my God! And that's kind of where I got like I was into music, and but I don't know if do you remember what these were. These were like London pubs that they had in malls across. Oh, the United I, States. I remember them. Yeah. And they had a stage, and at night they would have live bands. They were they were mainly in Six, college towns. Mainly in college towns, right. and I worked at the one. Of course, I went to school in Lubbock, but I, I worked at the Chelsea Street Pub. 
So it all comes together. Music, malls, 1989. That was the year I started at Chelsea Street Pub. See, it's all coming together. And right? I bartended there for a couple of years, and it was great. I got to see all these live bands, and like now, I, you know, it's what I do. I perform. Right. It, it, it's shaped who you were. That kind of yeah, I kind of. It's amazing. Isn't it? It is. It's crazy how life works out. Well, I, I will do an entire mall episode because I haven't. Have to. I have an affinity for the mall. Man, I got so many mall stories going through my totally. head. And I ended up working at Northeast Mall, but not until 1994. You did. I did. And that was when me and Chris would go. And back then, like, if you, like, the girls that, like, worked at the mall, like, especially the food court, that was status. Especially the the cookie machine that was, like, around the corner. Like, the the mall is very different now. But uh, I'm trying to think. No, no, no. no, That's where the fat girls work. It's so awful. It's Orange so, Julius. Yeah, right. That's where, yeah, that, that's where all the all the health freaks work. But anyway, um, but when I think of 1989, this is what I think of. I think of Crowley, Texas. Okay. I think of us playing baseball, us jamming, wanting to be in a band, but being like totally like scolded and thought of as being trash because we had long hair. Okay. On the other hand, Freak. on the good thing is that the Arsenio Hall show, we did the movies before we went before. Now we're going to get into television. Let's okay. I'm ready. Look what started in 1989. People think of Seinfeld as being like a nineties thing. That's where really where it hit its stride. Right. But 1989, the debut of Seinfeld and the Simpsons. Probably two of the greatest television shows in the history of television. Without question. Yeah. Now, The Simpsons didn't debut until December because it was part of a sketch that was about Christmas. Uh, that was from the... Because if you remember... remember yeah, yeah. It started on what? The Tracy Ullman Show. The Tracy Ullman Show. That's and right. And they did some sketches that became a Christmas special. And that was the network debut of The Simpsons, and right? it's still on today. And it's still on 30 years later. It's still wow. on. That's yeah. it's the longest running TV it was, show yeah. ever, right? Yeah, Gunsmoke ran for like 22 or 23 seasons, and now they're in their th- something like 32 seasons. It's, it's, it's insane. It's insane. And it's a cartoon, and it's because it's and it's so good, and, it it, and it'll keep going as long as they want it because people still want to see it. But I remember yeah, it's not like the characters are aging. I mean, they've been the same age for 30 years. Well, they had a little dispute with the voice actors, if you remember last year, that, that, that kind of threatened if there was going to be a new season. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but for me, like I said, that was something else. Like I said, I don't blame the people at school that didn't, like, because I wasn't, you know, all I led with was the fact that I was metal and I wore metal shirts and had long hair. Right, but, but you watched Arsenio Hall. But I was into Debbie Gibson and I watched Arsenio Hall that debuted that year. Well, you yeah, because it was like the cool new show and Arsenio was funny. What, Arsenio, was he in Harlem Nights? He, I think he was he, in Harlem Nights. He was in Harlem Nights. Well, so, he, was, he was in Coming to America, so, yes. so, so I, think, I, th- I, think he, I think he was also in, in, in Harlem Nights. I'm pretty sure he was. I'm pretty sure he was. But yeah, he was like the hot, new, cool thing, late night TV. Yeah. He was on Fox. It was, Fox, wasn't that Fox's first late yeah. night? Or did they have like Joe Rivers before that? I, I can't remember. No, I think, I think it was. And this is before what, how we think of Fox now as being this kind of political, like Republican, you know, bullshit. Back then, it was cutting edge. Because that's why it was exciting was because... Yeah, they were new and... Well, not only that, but also like the people that like maybe like Johnny Carson or Jay Leno had, or even David Letterman. There were people that were on Arsenio that weren't on those shows. You were seeing right, like the urban experience, right? I and get it. Even they weren't even on Yo, Yo MTV Raps. They, this was a place for them to go, and I lived for it. Yeah. I lived. So, I watched it every night, man. So, so to walk you through a typical day of me in 1989 at school 
and also the summertime. Are you ready? Oh, my God. You're such a rain man. Let's hear it. So during the school year, I probably the night before. What did you have for breakfast? No. Okay. <laughs> the night before, I probably had, this is where, like every kid. Now, I haven't actually smoked pot in about 25 years. Shame on you. And nothing against it. I'm just, it's not for me. But I did that thing you where. You might need some. Probably. Just saying. Where this was the year where I got turned on to it and it was kind of my all-consuming thing, right? And I had a, my friend Steve Ainsworth who was kind of... He was the dealer. No, I, I was the one that could get it because oh. my, uh, my sister could get it. calling out names No, here. no. But Steve was a bit of a bully. I love him. I love you, Steve. But he was a bit of a bully. So, and he bullied me and, uh, and, and a lot. And so I, I almost felt pressured but I'm also a bit of a people pleaser. I wanted to please him in this well, respect. Isn't that what right? drugs is all about? Pure pressure? Right. Right. I learned it by watching you. <laughs> anyway, so I probably had filled a tape case, probably a Slayer tape case, mm -hmm. full of, of joints. Nice. And I would put it in my back pocket. And I would get up in the morning. I would walk to Steve Ainsworth's house, who lived uh, about 100 yards, maybe 200 yards away from school. And you remember you pot smokers, especially you rookie pot smokers, know about the whole wake and bake thing, right? <laughs> and we would get freaking Chinese eyes, okay? At like 7 o'clock in the morning. Chinese. <laughs> you heard that expression? <laughs> that since 89. Because it's so politically incorrect, you shouldn't be saying that. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's so right. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, though. It's funny. It's we funny. can laugh now. We can laugh now. That's right. Anyway, it's so uh, how are you liking the black and the... You know what? That's what I tell Jocelyn. My wife is Asian. And I always say whenever, like, like sometimes like I will like walk into the bathroom when she's like getting out of the shower. And I always tell her the minute she gets out of the shower, my entire lower half of my body immediately goes... Awful. That's terrible. And I'm saying it to my Asian wife. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right, folks. I've been married since last time you heard me on the air. Oh, okay. Now, congratulations. Thank by you. Way. Sir. That's why we're having some whiskey today. That's right. And, and thank you to Metallica, Metallica and Q Prime for sending us this great bottle of black. And um, okay. So okay. So I probably filled a tape case. Went. We got. It's a, so this is a day in the life. Right. Okay. Lit up like a Christmas tree at Steve Ainsworth's house at seven o'clock in the morning. Well, you're sure calling him out, man. He is so busted right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, totally. First and last name, right? Yeah. yeah I know, right? <laughs> the cops are at his house now. <laughs> That's awesome, dude. <laughs> and so, Poor guy. But back then, I would smoke a joint, and I'd be high all day. I'm not kidding. I'd be right. high for like six it hours. It would last a lot longer, right? right? Yeah. Then I would I would come home, uh, and I would do my homework, uh, and I would probably you know try to watch you know some baseball or, or practice baseball, practice my drums, uh, hang out with my family, and then my nighttime ritual, like I said, consisted of I would go out to my jam room, I would smoke a joint. And I would stoner. go in the house. I was a total stoner back then. And I would go back in the house and I would watch Arsenio Hall. Yeah. Fucking like. We had to. I mean, that yeah, was like, man. it was so cool, man. Okay. So well, we talked cool. about those things. Arsenio. A few little things here. Uh, Mike Myers joined the cast of Saturday Night Live in 1989. God, that doesn't seem so. I mean, it just 
30 years ago. Was he like 12? I mean, right? He was young. Uh, Doogie Hauser started in 1989. Oh, jeez. Now, obviously, you know, obviously I'm a G.I. Joe guy. I got the tattoos to prove yeah. it. Uh, they, re- resur- they resurrected the, the uh, animated series, uh, and it ran for a couple of seasons. So shout out to that. It's cool, but if I didn't have the frame of reference, you know, it's not the same as the 82 one. But, uh, and it's called the, the D.I.C. That's the name of the company. But I call it Dick. So the G.I. Joe Dick series began in 89. I think I watched it, yeah. One of the only things, my wife is five years younger. I think I would get stoned and watch cartoons a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. G.I. Joe, yeah. For real. Or probably this one. My wife is five years younger than I am, so uh, one of the only things that we bonded over, because she was had the strict parents and she had to play her violin and all that, and she was only 10 in 1989. And that's when you started dating her. Uh, don't do that. <laughs> Edit. No. Um was that she doesn't know a lot about pop, pop culture back then because she wasn't allowed to watch. But the one thing that she did was allowed to watch or or however she came to it and I actually got her a t-shirt for her birthday this year was there was a short-lived show that was only on this one year and it was called Rude Dog and the Dweebs. Look no that, clue. Look that one up. Rude Dog and the Dweebs? Yeah. She was wearing the t-shirt just a couple of days ago. She loves Rude Dog. What the hell is that? Very, very... While I'm watching G.I. Joe as a 15-year-old in her new series, you and your brother are watching a series called Rude Dog and the Dweebs. Oh, yeah. That was fun. I, I like that one because the, the animation was... Um, it was uh, somehow, to me, it was cute. And uh, the colors and everything. And, of course, like, isn't... One of the motifs that like black and white checkered thing, and that was definitely eighties. To me, when I think of eighties and that whole aesthetic, the rude dog and the dweebs is like what paints the picture. <laughs> See, I love that because we all need something that frames it. Like, like I was saying, like it was the actions that we did. Uh, for me, Public Enemies' "Fight the Power" was everywhere. Janet Jackson's "Rhythm Nation." Uh, also came out that month in September. Those things, you know, for me, it always usually comes back to music or some sort of entertainment or just whatever I was consuming at the time. Uh, and the actions of the day, you know what I mean? Uh, like, you know, I was playing baseball and being in a band and all that. But And what's so funny is that I had no idea who the hell Rude Dog and the Dweebs were. I missed that entirely. Never heard of it. And what was it? Earlier this year, somehow, somewhere you saw something or you were trying to think of something and you came running in here and you went, oh yeah, Rude Dog and the Dweebs. And I had no <laughs> idea what you were talking about. Oh, really? Yeah, remember? Wow, no. <laughs> I have like mom brain now. It's like my, I have Swiss cheese memory. <laughs> but I, but what did I seek out for you and gift you for your 40th birthday after learning that information? An authentic Rude Dog and the Dweebs t-shirt. Which you are currently wearing. Yeah. It's pretty cute. I I wore it for the occasion. It's supposed to inspire me. Well, you are so (laughs) 1989. Uh, What do you remember uh, from that summer of 89? What was your... You were 10 years old. What was your day today? You were watching Rude Dog. What else were you doing? Listening to Forever Your Girl. What else? (laughs) I was into like Buck Rogers. (laughs) So I watched like a nice like it started with um, The Price is Right, and, you know, then it, I think maybe um, 
the young and the restless totally on right after that and then at some point we got into the monkeys and buck rogers and you know it was like you know a tv festival daytime tv that's right that's right (laughs) Uh, you were a little more active than I was. Uh, you were obviously you know doing the violin, your violin practicing. You were doing swim lessons by that time already, or yeah. Well, I was swim team. Swim team, yeah. Yes. Come on. That's right. Competing. <laughs> well, you know it's funny too because when I when I think about daytime TV, like I said, I uh, you know, gosh, the Price is Right wouldn't even represent a specific year. It would represent like like an entire decade. I my I watched Price is Right like throughout the 80s and, and into the 90s. <laughs> and again, I watched a little bit of Young and Restless myself. Uh, 87, 88. I remember, I remember, do you remember any, any of the characters' names? Was Cricket one Cricket of Cricket was the younger, I remember, remember that, right? Yeah. yeah. I just remember, because why would somebody be named Cricket? That's right, that's right. <laughs> but also, oh God, I think the, the main storyline, because you had, you had the... The Gerbeau Cosmetics Company, remember that? Yeah. And it was led by that family, and one of those guys' name was Jack, and then there was Ashley, and I think they were like brother and sister. But the guy they were fighting was the com- the competitor, and that guy was Victor. Uh huh. That's totally ringing a bell. Okay. And <laughs> Cricket, I think, was Victor's daughter or something. Wow, that's and, good memory. And I then, don't know. and then you had this other family who I can't, I can't remember. And then you remember, remember there was the private detective guy. Wow, I don't know. <laughs> I remember, I remember a lot of it. We watched it, like yeah, you have a great memory. <laughs> my sister Jamie, this was this was ninety by eighty nine. I, I don't, I don't think that we were, because um, uh, she and, that, and that's something else too uh, that we'll actually we'll, we'll get into was that the. Um, there were, she moved back to Arkansas around, I think, March of that year. Um, and God, there were so many people uh, living at our house at that time. It was just such a crazy, thank God I had the shit, we had the shed in the back because that was like, you know, the only place to get away from it all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, anything else you want to offer uh, for the uh, 1989? Um. Well, it was definitely a fun year. I mean, you mentioned uh, Janet Jackson, uh, something that we used to create, you know, choreographed dances too. So that's that's kind of my memory with the music from yeah. back then. Good stuff. Good memories. We are a nation with no geographic boundaries, bound together through our beliefs. We are like-minded individuals sharing a common vision, pushing toward a world rid of color lines.
Okay, well, this is Sam Jones Flash Gordon. I'm with Roy Turner at Tricky Kid Radio. And you better be tuning in, or I will find you. Yes, I will. Yes. <laughs> okay, so now a couple things I wanted to mention. Uh, so as we got through um, August, uh, that's when Forever Your Girl, the single, was released. And again, that was your first piece of music on your jam box your first cd yes along with i think some uh with some guns and roses too yeah I had that and the guns and roses album those were my first two albums right uh, you're talking about of course appetite for destruction that was actually released a yes. few year, years before but again it didn't really take off until 88 89 so you so like like one of the the big awards at the 89 MTV Music Awards was for Guns N' Roses for an album that, that was two years old. So, Good. you know. Uh, well, something also uh, happened the next month. Uh, you'll enjoy this. Uh, some albums uh, that actually came out that uh, um, month was 
I remember when I made you uh, for your birthday a, a mix a mix CD like 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 in the old days. Yeah. Young MCs Bust a Move came out in September of '89. Awesome. Um, again, didn't wasn't into it at the time, but later became one of my favorite albums. Soundgarden's Loud Love. Mm-hmm. Uh, Errol Smith's Pump was everywhere with uh, uh, with Janie's Got a Gun yeah. and uh, I think Loving and Elevators on that. Uh, and of course, the band who's am I wearing the hat right now? The band that you and I always uh, listen to. <laughs> I've, t- I've taken you to see twice now. Yes, Faster Pussycats. Woo-hoo. Wake me when it's over. <laughs> and the big single from that is oh the the house that my house of pain. Right. You, is it that? Is that what it's called? It's the song is called and because there's no one home. In my house of pain. No, and in my house of pain. <laughs> and we just saw Faster Pussycat, and how was it? It was a lot of fun. They fun. They did a great job, and, and they have a new guitar player. Is that right? Yeah. Or was it just? Yeah. I think so. That guy Keith was a nice guy, right? Uh huh. Yeah. Um. Obviously, you know how much this is like my favorite band of all time. What is my favorite band of all time? Is it Motley Crue? It is Motley Crue. (laughs) And their album, Dr. Feel Good, uh, came out. And we talked about that in part one. Uh, I was kind of needing something a little heavier uh, in in September of 89. But uh, still great to see those guys uh, had come back. Uh, And then uh, it was the return also of September. Because now, like you said, you know, like network TV, like how we do this show. June, July, and August are the summer months, and September is when all the new shows start. And they had brought back G.I. Joe, the cartoon oh. that ran from 85, uh, uh, or actually from 83 to 85, and then, um, and all which is called the Sunbow series. And that box set that I'm always showing, Miles, that's every episode from the Sunbow series. Uh, oh. The DIC or the Dick series uh, was only uh, out just for that one season. And it's okay. Again, by that time, I was, you know, 15. I still watched, of course, you know. Um, but something very special came out uh, that same week. Uh, and it means, again, so much to me. Again, I want to thank Michael Galinsky. Uh, make sure you support his book, uh, The Decline of Mall Civilization. Uh, check out Audrey uh, Fernandez and her GoFundMe. She's better known as Honey Lulala, and we love her. And come on back. We're going to do part two. Don't forget to check out. We have a full 1989 mix. It's 80 minutes long at TrickyKid.com. Don't forget to visit our YouTube channel, which is Tricky Kid TV. You can find me on Twitter at Tricky Kid the number two. My alter ego, DJ Tricky Kid, on Instagram under just that, DJ Tricky Kid. Go on Facebook under Tricky Kid Radio Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. You'll get shows just like this each and every single week. Uh, and again, I hope you're having a great, great, great summer. We're celebrating 30 years of 1989. Once again, from the legendary landmark Paul's Boutique, this is the 12-minute insanity that ends that record. And we'll be back. Oh, yeah.